welcome to the Trust Your Body Project. Trust Your Body Project is a podcast and social media movement designed to help you heal, eat, and create space for the things that truly matter. I'm your host, Whitney Catalano. I'm an anti-diet, health at every size registered dietitian, helping you stop dieting, make peace with your body, and take the power back from your inner bully. Welcome to episode number 27. Today, we will be talking to Lindsay Hall from Lindsay Hall Writes on Instagram about Kerbo, Weight Watchers, her you know, experience in recovery and eating disorders, how she got into journalism and all of that. So I'm really excited about this because a lot of you are asking me to do an episode about Kerbo and she actually has written a couple pieces, I think, on Kerbo the past week or so since Weight Watchers announced the launch of the app for kids. If you don't know, Um, it's the Weight Watchers new app for kids, putting kids on diets using like a stoplight system. So since Lindsay, we already had this interview scheduled and since Lindsay has been doing a ton of research on it already for her pieces, I thought what better time than to talk to her about this directly. So I hope this will give you some insight and you can share it with people who don't maybe don't quite understand, or it's just to help you understand why this just isn't the best idea. And we're going to talk about why people think it's a good idea too. So I'm really excited for that. But before we get into that, thank you so much. I'm going to go out of order because I don't have my little outline in front of me right now. So let's start with the people who left Apple podcast reviews. Thank you to PT Smitler, Shelly Lingo, El Modis, Larry Cucumbers, <laughs> and C6 Lafo W. Thank you all for leaving Apple Podcast reviews. Please, please, please go leave those reviews. I'm going to keep on saying it until everyone's left a review. I know some people have been saying that they're having trouble leaving reviews. It won't let them leave it. They've tried so many times, and sometimes my podcast episodes don't quite work. I don't really know what the situation is with that, but please keep trying to leave them. Um, you can also, I think, go on to, directly on iTunes and do it. But yeah, those Apple reviews really mean a lot to me, so I appreciate it for everyone who has left one. Just a little housekeeping on me. I am feeling so inspired and creative today. I'm beyond thrilled about it. Um, I'm about to go on a trip. So just to let you know, I will be taking a two or three week hiatus from the podcast while I go on my trip. I don't want to take my microphone on my trip. I'm really only working like two or three days while I'm gone because I'll be gone for a little over two weeks. So I figured two or three days is enough to, you know, get some done. I'll be showing up on social media and, um, you know, still kind of supporting you all that way, but I will, you know, not be recording podcast episodes or putting them out. And this is a much needed break because I've been going pretty strong since literally January, I think, or February. So yeah, it's time for me to take a little break. And I'm really excited about that. I appreciate your patience. Highly recommend that while I'm on this break, that you go back and catch up on old episodes that you haven't caught up on. And I will definitely pop into my Instagram stories and recommend episodes that maybe you have missed. So keep an eye out for that and just keep an eye on my Instagram because I will be doing a lot of education coming up. Um, I have a lot of things sort of in the works right now. And with that being said, that's a perfect segue to I am launching a group program. It is called From Binge to Food Freedom. It is going to be a group program. And when this episode comes out, it looks like the wait list for the program will be open. I think I'm going to open the wait list on the Tuesday, the 27th, the day this episode comes out. I might open it on the 28th. So if you don't see it on my Instagram by then, 
then you'll know, but I have it ready to go. So basically, why would you want to join the waitlist? If you are interested in healing your relationship with food, this program is for people who are currently struggling with emotional eating, with binge eating, with not really knowing how to deal with their emotions and sit in the discomfort of their emotions. People who, you know, you're really nervous about the repercussions of letting yourself go through the binge recovery process, but you know you need to because you can't keep you know, going through this diet binge roller coaster, you're just stuck. You, you know that it's not working for you, but also you're terrified of going through the recovery process. This group coaching is like the best version of my program that I've run so far. Every single version of this program that I've run over the past year or so has been good. It's worked. It's been effective. But with this little sort of emotional burnout episode that I've been going with and then, you know, refining my creativity and slowing down, the way that I've approached my program design this time is a game changer. I am so, so, so beyond excited for this round. I'm putting so much good energy into it. I'm like, I really think that this is going to be like a life changing experience for the people who are involved. And if you're ready for that, or at least you know that the cons of what you're experiencing right now really outweigh the pros of staying in this place that you're in, then I would highly recommend you join the waitlist. Joining the waitlist does not mean you're in the program. Joining the waitlist is basically just saying, I'm interested in, in learning about the program. I'm interested in you know, finding out more about it. I don't know if I'm going to be able to do it. I'm gonna, I don't know if I'm going to want to do it, but let me know ahead of time. The benefits of being on the waitlist is that the cart will open for the program for everyone on the waitlist 72 hours before it opens for everyone else, which means you get first dips on VIP spots. So I'll have an option, a cheaper option for the program where you just attend the sessions, you get the Facebook group, all those things. And then I'll have VIP where you get more individualized, like small group coaching with me. And I will have a limited number of VIP spots. So if that's something that you really, really want, definitely join the waitlist because I imagine that those applications are going to be filled up pretty quickly. So, you know, first dibs is going to go to the people who are able to sign up three days ahead of time. Other things that you get from the waitlist, let's say you aren't interested in VIP, but you still end up joining off the waitlist, you will get discounts, bonuses, and all extra goodies that are only going to be available to people on the waitlist. All of these bonuses, discounts, and extra stuff will expire the day that the regular cart for the program opens. So that means you definitely, definitely, definitely want to take advantage of being on the waitlist. Even if you don't join the program, on the off chance that you actually do want to join it, you will get so much extra stuff and we all love a discount. So um, I definitely recommend you doing that if this is something that you're looking for. Again, it's for people who are currently struggling with binge eating and emotional eating or emotional eating. You don't have to be binge eating. You can It can just be emotional eating or maybe mindless eating or whatever it is and feeling like you know you need to really radically change your approach to food and you need to do a lot of healing around food, but you're scared to. This is for sort of stage one or maybe you've been you know interested in intuitive eating for a while. You You've been a little bit nervous about it and you haven't really changed anything in your life, but you know that dieting isn't working. Even if you haven't dieted in a while, but you just haven't gone down this sort of intuitive eating path, this is for you. This is not for people who have already been intuitive, doing intuitive eating by themselves for a while, have gone through that sort of binge phase in the early recovery and who are feeling more stable and are looking to just like strengthen it. That's not really for you. I mean, you'll learn stuff in this program, but I think a lot of it is going to be going to feel like a waste of time because so much of this program is hand holding you through the, you know, healing the binge and emotional eating 
process. Okay, I'm going to stop talking about that. You get it. You get the point. So definitely go to my Instagram page and the link will be in my bio to sign up for the waitlist. I will also be sending out an email announcing that the waitlist is open to all my subscribers. Keep an eye out for that because I don't have the URL for it right now, so I can't give it to you in advance. Um, I wish I could. I also don't want to just in case I don't open the waitlist on Tuesday. You get the point. But that is coming very soon. We're going to be starting the program literally in October and it's going to be going through the new year. So you're going to get a lot of holiday help. You're going to get a lot of like how to set intentions for the new year without doing those like BS New Year's resolutions. Um, Yeah, it's going to be really fun. I'm so, so, so excited putting all of my energy into this and I'm like, ah, I feel so good about it. So if you want to join me in this, if you've been dying to work with me, but one-on-one never seemed like a feasible option, this is your chance. So again, go find me on Instagram at Trust Your Body project and let me know you can also just dm me and be like winnie put me on that waitlist girl and i will do that and last but not least not to throw too much at you all but i have the like most exciting idea today i had i'm i'm just so excited the only thing i'm going to tell you about it is that i'm going to start doing either at the end of this year or early next year, probably early next year, I'm going to start doing in-person retreats. And I've been wanting to do retreats for a while, but I wasn't sure what kind of retreat I wanted to do. And I had that drop of wisdom today. And oh my gosh, I've never felt more aligned about something before. This is just... It's a game changer, honestly. So please stay tuned for that because I know I'm being such a tease right now, but just, uh, just you wait. I'm so excited. (laughs) Okay. Can you tell I'm like thriving right now? I feel so happy. Um, And I'm going on a trip, which, yeah. So yay. Okay. Let's just get into the interview. I'm going to stop talking now. Bye. So today we're talking to Lindsay Hall, who is an award-winning eating disorder and addiction speaker and writer, focusing on the nitty-gritty topics of recovery and eating disorders. Uh, Welcome, Lindsay. Hello. Thanks for having me. Uh, Thanks for being here. So you, people probably know you from Lindsay Hall Writes on Instagram, correct? That or my blog. I started the I uh, Haven't Shaved in Six Weeks blog back in 2014. Yeah. So when I was doing a little bit of research on you, you've been writing in this space for a while now. You're a pretty big deal online. <laughs> oh, no, I appreciate that. There's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of writers out there, but yeah, I started it. Um, I started it way back. I, mean, I can't even believe it's been five years already, but yeah, back in 2014, right after I got out of a six week, um, in residential treatment time for an eating disorder. So that's kind of, I, I really couldn't find it. At the time, I couldn't find anything online that was going to give me that kind of nitty gritty um, detail about what is treatment like, right? Like it was the first time I was going, I had no idea what to expect. I mean, frankly, of course, I was weighing the eating disorder. So I was like, what, what food's going to be there? Like, what are the other women going to be like? Because I was in an all women facility in Florida. Like it was so terrifying. And all I could find were these kind of clinician blog posts and this kind of like, maybe research articles on treatment in general. And so I was like, you know what, once I get through this, I'm going to write, I'm going to write something about it. I'm going to write what it was like day in and day out. And I kind of coined it as like, it was the, or just the new black of uh, treatment (laughs) Mm. because that's what I was kind of trying to give back to the public is some sort of authentic um, idea of what they'd be going into if somebody was going into treatment. Yeah. So how did writing about your experiences contribute to your healing? 
Oh gosh, I think it's been such a motivating factor in so many ways. I think it's so hard in this first year. I mean, first years really when you're out of treatment to stay um, encouraged or to stay motivated because it's just so easy in the beginning to go back to what you already know and your brain is kind of, you know, I, I believe a lot in the neuro, the neurobiological symptoms of anorexia and how it changes your brain patterns and whatnot. And so when I started writing, it was just this way of, of getting it out of like getting out what was going on in my head that I couldn't quite maybe put together. It was like, I had all these thoughts in the beginning and I couldn't figure out how to string them all together. And by writing about them and then being able to put it online. And when my blog started getting known or my blog started receiving some feedback, it was just this like empowering feeling of understanding for the first time, really. Cause even in treatment, I didn't quite get it. But once it was out in the public, starting to get all these people from all walks of life, all countries, men and women coming back and being like, I know what you've gone through. I feel this way too. It was a motivating way to stay in recovery. And then all the work I've gotten to do since then and to really have that clear understanding of what an eating disorder is and how it does change the brain and that I'm not, you know, that it's not my fault that I have an eating disorder. It's kind of a lot of different factors that play into it. So that's what I kind of think writing has given to me in the last five years. Yeah. I love what you just said about, it's not my fault that I have an eating disorder because that I know is an attitude, especially in early recovery or before uh, there's this tendency I've seen even just with diet recovery to keep it to yourself and not want to tell anyone because you feel ashamed of it. And, and you feel ashamed of how much time you spent in it and all of this stuff and recognizing that it isn't your fault. So can you expand on that a bit? Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, in the beginning, especially when I was in treatment, I was horribly embarrassed about going. I I didn't have any friends that I knew of at the time, which of course I had since later found out that I had quite a few more friends and acquaintances Mm -hmm. than I thought that had gone to treatment themselves or at least outpatient, you know, or, or therapy. And um, at the time, though, I went and I barely told anybody. It was such. It, it felt so crippling to to need treatment. And so when I got out and I was really starting to feel better, and and you know, I always say this to people: like I went when I was ready. I really, truly was tired. It had been eight years, and I had lived in that cycle since I was sixteen years old, or at least started the cycle. That's what I say. Nobody goes into an eating disorder full force, right? Like you don't fall into it head over heels. You, it becomes this thing where first it's just I want to lose X number of pounds, or I want to, I want to get fit, quote quote, whatever it is, and then it just starts, you know, spitballing over itself um, over time. But when I got out and I was starting to feel better, and I was an outpatient and still going, I kind of had this sense of realization that like I had lied my whole life. I had lied for eight years. Like I had lived in this kind of manipulation my whole life, which of course affected my relationships, affected just the way I went about life. And so one of the reasons I started writing too was because I just... One day I was just tired. I ran into somebody at the grocery store. I'm from Texas and I was back home with my parents doing outpatient. And I lived in New York at the time and I ran into somebody from high school and they're like, Lindsay, what are you doing? What are you doing home? It's like a Tuesday. Don't you live in New York? And I lied and like fumbled through something. And I just, I don't know what it was about that moment. It just something clicked for me. And I was like, I am so done like feeling shame about my life. Like I'm just, I can't, if I just, if I keep lying, how am I ever going to unlearn how to manipulate in the first place? And so that's kind of where I, I made a Facebook status of all things. But again, it's 2014. Um, I made a Facebook status and then followed that was the blog. Mm. I just felt like I couldn't keep repeating the same pattern that I had done for so long. Yeah, I get that. And 
if you don't mind, I'd love to go back a little bit to where your cycle started, like how, how you kind of fell into controlling food. Yeah, absolutely. Of course. Um, I think, you know, I always say this, I have a pretty typical eating disorder story, which is, I think why sometimes it relates, you know, it, it can relate to people is that I didn't start off wanting an eating disorder. I was 16 years old. I just started, I was always in a smaller body uh, growing up. I was the shortest girl in the class. And, uh, you know, I don't think people realize how how identity fueled that can be, you know, because my whole life I grew up with teachers and parents and adults telling me that being small was my identity, whether it was that lining up kids uh, smallest to tallest or uh, shortest to tallest in the classroom. I was always at the short line and like I was just really identified by my weight throughout my whole childhood. So when I hit puberty around 15 or 16 and grew and I no longer I no longer knew really what to do. Like I wasn't the prettiest girl in the class. I wasn't the smartest girl, the most athletic. Like I had just always been the shortest and small. And so when I kind of lost that identity, it really, it really, at the time, I didn't know what to do with it. I didn't know where to go with it. I didn't know who I really was without it. And as, so at 16, it all became, at first it was just totally this, what felt like an innocent approach to trying to quote, get healthy, which is of course, as we now know, a term that just is constantly overused, but I didn't know any better. I hadn't been educated on any of that as most of us aren't at 16 because we all have crappy education classes where we're <laughs> like, where it's like taught by a coach or something who has no interest in actually teaching us about health. Mm-hmm. And so it started as like, just like becoming aware of food. And when I started becoming aware, and of course, it, and I'll never, I always call out this company because I think it was such a damaging company, but the eat this, not that company. Oh uh, my was, gosh. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yep. yeah that, that to me is such a definitive part of where I started learning calorie counting, where I started learning about food. And, you know, when all you're seeing is, just, you know, when you're young, you just don't have this like, understanding of PR and marketing and what these companies are really trying to do, which is of course brand loyalty, which is of course trying to feed into the diet industry so that we have people in a constant cycle of dieting so that they make money and profit off of it. I didn't realize that at 16. I thought that was like the Bible. I thought Mm -hmm. all, you know, and eat this, not that. Honestly, they were a huge book at the time. Remember how well that book did when it first came out? So I looked to them as a health Bible in a lot of ways. And so I started mimicking my behavior after that. Again, what in what I felt was an innocent kind of mature approach to health. And over time, it just, it's like with anything, right? It's like once you start becoming obsessed with it, it, it just starts leading into more and more and fueling it and fueling it. And I always mention that when I was 18, my first week of college, uh, I went to a big FCC school and uh, my best friend from childhood, he passed away. It was a tragic accident. Like totally unexpected. And it was the first time I had ever really gone through tragedy. And I didn't have any coping tools to handle it. I had not gone through... I had had a pretty cush life. My cush life, I think that's the word. (laughs) Um, I had a pretty cush cush life, whatever that is. And when he died, I really didn't know how to handle it. So I went even further into this kind of trying to control, right? I mean, the controlling what was around me and it just led into the cycle. And over the years, you know, I always like to stress this. I didn't live with just anorexia. I lived in the cycle. My weight fluctuated up and down for eight years. And of course, I'm not going to name numbers or say how much, but I went up and down for eight years. And the reason I think I never really sought help for it is because I lived under the not sick enough impression because all I saw, I, I started to have 
a feeling that I had an eating disorder. Like I knew something was wrong. Like I knew puking wasn't good. Like, mm. You're aware at a certain point, you're aware that what you're doing is consuming your life, right? Like I don't think anybody has the eating disorder that doesn't somewhat on a conscious level know that what they're doing is effed up. But I kept looking for like anorexia. And even back then, I, I feel like it's only been in recent years that we've started shedding more light on what anorexia could look like. All I saw was Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen in 2010 or 2009. And I didn't look like that. Like I, I looked, I was a pretty, what doctors would say, a healthy weight for a, quite a bit of that eating disorder cycle. So to me, I was like, well, then I'm not sick enough to deserve help. And it wasn't until about the last year, the eighth year of my eating disorder that I got sick enough, quote, quote, that people started finally... I mean, I was acting so erratic too. I was I was doing all sorts of stuff. Um, but at that time, finally, I had friends intervene and call my parents and be like, I'm just worried about her. But they weren't even really worried about my weight. They were just more like, she's acting so erratic and I know it's coming from food. Mm. And yeah, and so I was lucky I had parents that really stepped in. Um, and the night that they stepped in, I was at a wedding and I, it was like a hot wedding. I was in Texas and I was wearing like an oversized coat because I like, of course, had a horrific body dysmorphic disorder, which I didn't even know that existed back then. Mm. And so I was like dealing with body dysmorphia and I had this huge coat on and I was like, I had binge ate two boxes of food of my parents right before this wedding, gone to the wedding, of course, gotten wasted because alcohol was like one of the only ways I knew how to cope with the obsessive compulsiveness of all of it. And when I got home, my parents had dug out the cereal boxes. And that's like, I tell this story all the time, every time I have an interview about this, but my parents had put the two boxes of cereal on a coffee table. And that was when I just broke down. And my dad, my dad, they just knew, you know, at that point, I just like let it all come out. And I was like, I've been dealing with this for so long. I don't even know like how to get out. I'm drowning in it. And that was, that was kind of my, that was kind of the catalyst for me. And about a month later, I gave up everything, left my job, left my New York apartment and uh, I went to treatment. Wow. That's quite a story. And I think a lot of people would relate to the not sick enough thing. I mean, even I remember being in college and literally studying to become a dietitian. And the one thing that we learned about eating disorders, which is just so sad that dietitians like don't get extensive training on eating disorders unless you specialize in it. It makes no sense. But um, the one thing that we learned is we watched one of those videos from like the early 2000s about anorexia. And it just shows this like the classic body that you think of in anorexia. And I remember at the time, like I was very much in my disordered eating and I saw that video and I didn't identify with it at all. I was just like, oh, wow, you know, working with eating disorders would be interesting. But no part of me was like, oh, I have disordered eating tendencies because it was all framed as a body weight thing. Mm-hmm. And it's yep. not. <laughs> no, totally. Well, and also it's like, you know, and I've written about this too. I mean, you can like, I, it's the cycle, right? It's like, I would restrict for days at a time. And then I would, my body naturally freaks out. You freak out, you know, like you can't live in just one part of that. To me, most people cannot live in one part of the cycle for extended amounts of time otherwise they are or 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 they're hospitalized and so for me it was kind of just this this erratic cycle where i was like i would restrict for a couple days but then i'd freak out and binge eat everything and then i'd feel bad and then i'd purge and then i'd binge eat and then i'd restrict i mean it was just i'd overexercise whatever it was it was just a constant erraticness that was going on but it was all centered around the idea of wanting to just keep losing weight 
Mm. And that's why I think that, yeah, same thing. I didn't really think I had anorexia. So I was surprised when I was actually diagnosed with that in the treatment center, because to me, I thought I had binge eating disorder because that was the more shameful one. You know, there's the Mm. stereotype around binging. So I think I actually didn't even feel that much shame around restriction at the time. I felt the shame around binge eating. Exactly. Oh my gosh. That is the so frustrating to me because that's still, and it's a huge reason why I run my platform the way that I do and specialize in binge eating because it's not actually about the binge eating ever. It's about the restriction and binge eating has been this villainized thing, but then restrictions like fine to an extent, you know, and it's like, as long as you're like, it's, if it's in the pursuit of weight loss, you're fine. But if you know, whatever, it's just these arbitrary rules. Yeah. I always, I I love when people focus on binge eating because I mean, I really do stress this all the time. Like in the five years I've been in recovery, I've had a couple of binge sessions in the beginning when I was still working out how to be in recovery. And of course recovery is a daily thing, right? Like it's never a linear process, but I've, I have not had a binge eating session in so many years at this point because all of those cues came back. And nobody realizes that like you are only binge eating when you are doing something to your body that is demanding it be fed. I haven't had, like, I always call it the tick, right? Like that binge eating tick. Mm. And I, that tick has quieted so much over the last couple of years, especially. And I'm recognizing more and more the longer I'm in recovery, how much it was based on restriction. And it wasn't just something was effed up with me or that I had some weird tick that nobody else had. Like it was a biological response. (laughs) Yeah. And then now it's been sort of, you know, I think part of the problem too is all the various binge eating books and philosophies out there that are like, breathe through the urge. And I just think it's bullshit. I'm like, fuck you. And those books are also like, you can stop binge eating and lose weight. And I'm just like, oh, no. I know. (laughs) So mad. The whole industry kills my soul a little bit. Uh, Makes me so mad. And people ask for my opinion all the time. And I'm like, you know what I'm going to say. Like, you know that that's not how it's not what it is. It's, it's about, you know, when the restriction goes away and it's not about you can't control food, that you don't have any willpower. No, 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 no. It's that your body needs to eat. Period. End of sentence. Well, and I think sometimes binge eating came for me at least like, and I, I feel like I hear this a lot from people. Maybe you'll, you'll agree. It comes a lot out of like the shame of not feeling like you restricted enough. So it's almost like a form of self-punishment too. Yeah. Um, and I always, I, I, I very, I have very clear memories of binge eating. Mine was always effing ice cream, but it was binge eating ice cream whenever it was like, whenever I felt this like shame of not being quote good enough at my eating disorder to be recognized or like to, to feel like I had accomplished what these unrealistic expectations I had for what my body should be doing. Mm. And then I would do it out of this, like, kind of like you suck. Like I suck. Like I'm not, I'm not even good at this. You know, I spend all my time focusing on it and I'm not even good at this eating disorder or good at this lifestyle, the healthy lifestyle as I thought it was at the time. And and that's where I remember a lot that that would kind of trigger the tick of being like, yeah, just that kind of obsessive compulsionness of it, which I do not miss. (laughs) Absolutely. Yeah. No, there's, there's a lot of different driving factors behind binge eating and we could, you know, spend all day talking about it, but you know, when it comes down to it, if you're binge eating, anyone who's listening to this, it's a symptom, not the problem itself. And that I think is totally. a message of we need to stop demonizing it and making it this thing to a fear because of fat phobia. It's just, it means that you need to get help with the restriction part of it or with whatever's going on inside, you know? 
Amen. That's how your podcast came up for me. Actually, I asked my Instagram <laughs> followers about uh, binge eating specifically, and a lot of them mentioned yours and how much you focus on it. So thank you for your work on it. Yay. Oh, that makes me happy. Mm -hmm. So I want to switch gears a little bit because you know that I want to talk about Kerbo. I also am really intrigued by what you had said earlier about the eat this, not that. And to be honest, I haven't thought about that book in so long. And now that I'm thinking about it, I'm like, oh my gosh, that was such a big part of my disordered eating too. I can't believe I forgot about that. They had that Twitter account. You're right. Back then, back then, Twitter was like the big social media platform in like 2011, 2010. And that's where that was. And they would just feed out the eat this, not that tips every day. I think, I don't know if that even exists anymore, but <laughs> I don't yes. follow it, obviously. Yeah. Something I'm sure equivalent exists. I know that that's mm -hmm. still, I mean, I think it's a philosophy that's been kind of left behind more, but it's still there and ingrained in all of us on some <laughs> deep subconscious level. Yeah. Um, you know, cauliflower rice and stuff. It's we're, right. we're now we're just doing it normally. It's not this whole thing that's branded in yellow. I will never forget that book. <laughs> like, I know, right? It was the big bold letters too. <laughs> but I'm curious, um, and this is not a question that I had planned, but I'm curious what your thoughts are after studying and writing about this stuff for so long. Do you feel like, for example, the eat this, not that people are genuinely think that they're helping people or do you think, I mean, obviously profit m makes this complicated, right? Because it is really profitable to have repeat customers, but I always struggle with how intentional is this really, this whole diet culture thing? How intentional, how much is it people being, you know, these evil CEOs sitting there being like, we need to make sure people fail this diet so they keep coming back? And how much of it is unintentional and just sheer like negligence for the research? I love that question. Oh, I'm so glad you asked that. <laughs> uh, you know, I work in the PR and marketing space, so I prob I am going to disclose all everything that I say it comes with the disclosure of like I work in that industry, so I might have a bias that that someone else would you know might, I have a biased opinion. <laughs> yeah. Um, I've often tried to write about having empathy. So you know I think we demonize companies easily, mm -hmm. uh, and and there's a reason. I'm not saying that there's not a lot of the time, but. Oftentimes I do think about, you know, like ERC, for example, eating recovery center has been, and I, I work with their marketing department just as also as a disclosure pretty closely, not in a paid way, but just in a way that I'm, I'm friendly with them. Um, I think that their mission is all, you know, I think someone like them, their mission is always pure. The people that work there that are trying to actually do the work, the clinicians, um, I think most, most of the time they're trying to do the right thing. What ends up happening is something happens on social media and they get just lambasted because they have something go through on social media that is not, you know, appropriate or that is, is fueling diet culture, et cetera. And they actually had that last year and they just got torn apart on. So I can't even remember what it was. Over. I think it was over binge eating, honestly, but they got torn apart on social. And the one thing I had to say back is I was like, yo, like, I agree. It was, it was, it was mischaracterized. What they did wasn't great. But at the same time, I think a lot of times people behind those social media platforms are young. Mm -hmm. They're 23 years old. They're 24 years old. They're sometimes they're interns just working in the PR and marketing and social media space. I've seen it happen at every, a lot of companies. I've been at a lot of PR agencies, a lot of marketing agencies. I see it. It's, it's oftentimes young kids and maybe yes, they're getting things maybe they're getting this content approved by a higher source, right? Mm -hmm. 
but it may have just been something that slipped through the cracks. So I try to have practice some empathy and the intention behind it. I don't think that it's the daily people that are like necessarily evil behind it. I do think that in a lot of companies, like I'm like, I, I do with Weight Watchers, I have no empathy for them at all, other than their young interns who are impressionable and don't know what they're doing or maybe not know what they're getting into. But with like something like Weight Watchers, no, I don't. They know that 90, what is it? 95 or 92% of diets don't work. They know that they have all that resource and that day, that data available. And the only reason to me that they're, spinning out a Kerbo health app is because first of all, they knew it was going to get a ton of publicity and all publicity, no matter how bad it is, can typically be good publicity overall. And that to me is deplorable. I think when you're fueling an industry that you know what I just, it's kind of like big pharma, right? Like I have really strong feelings about big pharma and the opiate epi- epidemic. They had that research. Weight Watchers has that research. They know what, that what they're doing isn't effective. And they also know, and I would have to, this is something I said to one of my followers that was asking about it. I, of course, without having their demographic and understanding who they're targeting, I can't know for sure. But my guess is that Weight Watchers for $69 a month for this Kerbo app to have a coach or they're targeting affluent people. They're not targeting lower income families who may not have the means or the resources to even be able to get that fresh fruit and that fresh produce to their kids. So what is that app going to do for these five-year-olds who can't even, they don't have control over what they're getting to eat. And that to me, no, no, you did. They didn't think through everything they were doing in my opinion. And they knew that it would just create a new generation of dieters and a new generation of brand loyalty. (laughs) So Sorry, just to clarify, you said that they are targeting more affluent families and they're not targeting low-income families? It would be my guess yeah. that they are, that they're targeting more affluent because it's $69 a month for a, for coaching for children. I don't see a lower-income family being able to afford that. That's true. Um, yeah. And I've also read quite a bit of, while well, I was writing about this last week, uh, I read quite a few... I was reviewing reviews that were negative, that weren't just people being like eating disorder, eating disorder, eating disorder. I was actually trying to review user reviewers. And I read quite a few where they've also, they haven't, um, these coaches that they have on this app do not necessarily have to be registered. Um, And then I read a lot of reviews of parents feeling upset because a lot of times coaches were rescheduling or canceling. And that to me, like, I don't think that they have all that figured out. And Mm. so I was looking at more of that. I was trying to look at the actual app itself instead of just the idea of the eating disorder, right? Because we all, you know, I think we all have are unanimous in our our revolting of it (laughs) because Mm. of feeling eating disorders. But I just think on on a more marketing level that, yeah, I don't have empathy for something like that. I think that they know exactly what they're doing. So tell me about what you found sort of disturbing or what you found in general about the app itself, you know, just looking at how the app works and how it's teaching kids about food. I think, you know, something that struck out to me, because of course I was using it for a little bit, but, and this is something that's been called out in a couple other posts as well, but, or Instagram or social media complaints, but I put in, you know, everything, I was eating, I put it in for a day just to see what would come up as red. And it was to me, very basic things like an egg was yellow, but an egg with oil was red or an egg with butter was red. And to me, I was like, well, then what are you supposed to cook an egg with? Like, do you know what I mean? Like there's just, there was no, there's no alternatives. Mm. (laughs) Um, And so, and then also I'm like, what five-year-old 
can control if their egg has oil in it or if their egg has butter in it. They're not the ones making it most likely. And this app is, or even an eight-year-old necessarily is not making that. So to me, I just don't even understand. That was one thing that struck out to me that I'm like, how are they even going to understand what that, you know, what to put into an app like this, like an egg with butter. And and then I put in an enchilada and it made me go through all the ingredients of my enchilada and what my flour or what my tortilla was and this and that. And I was like, I don't even understand. To me, it just didn't make sense that even an eight-year-old could even really understand what, you know, if they're not making their own food, which they're likely not, how would they know? Yeah. It almost like you have to come into it with sort of an understanding of what even goes into food for this app to even be relevant. That's a little bizarre. Okay. Another huge thing is that I feel like an app like that puts the blame on the child when really Mm. it's a lot of, when really it's a lot of cultural forces around the child that have either led. And we don't even know if that, that's the other thing. You you don't even know if the child's technically, even though that's a whole nother word that Mm -hmm. I have an issue around, but you don't even know what, what, child is using this and it doesn't monitor if a child, this was something I read in one of the app reviews. It doesn't monitor if a child only consumes water and carrots all day. Like if they're eating, if they're under eating, the app doesn't track that unless they're Mm -hmm. doing the coaching platform. And that to me is dangerous. I know that the app is trying to, you know, the whole messaging behind it is that it's a family fueled thing. But how do you know that? I mean, if the kid has a phone, it's their private phone. How often, do, I mean, as a family member, really, how likely is it that they're all going to be doing this family thing together is more my my concern. Yeah, the way that I see it is that the parents would be like, get this app, you do it. And it's just one less thing for the parents to have to like worry about because if the parent is struggling to help the child, then it's like, use the app and the app will help you. This isn't a family thing. Let's do it together. It's like a, you know, here's your coach, right. learn about it. No, if it's just, if you don't pay for it, it isn't professionally monitored unless a parent pays for the coaching service. Mm. And the reco- and as I said, the coaches are not required to have outside training in nutrition or diet, diet, diet diet, whatever. <laughs> yeah. Dietetics. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> and even in the case of, because, you know, the big, the big argument against, or I guess the big argument for the app is, you know, but, uh, and I don't like to use the O word on this podcast, but like, I call it the weight epidemic. So you know, the weight epidemic, how are we supposed to like get kids skinny? And to me, it's like, I don't care how big the kid is under eating is a problem, period. Like we cannot be putting, it will stunt their growth. It will, you know, like there's so many things that are happening, so many parts of their body and their brains that are developing through your 18th, through your twenties. Honestly, we're still hormonally developing. We're still, our brains are still developing in our early twenties. Like this is something we should not be introducing restriction into the mix. And especially with an app that is not clear about like what level of restriction is too much restriction, we should not be introducing that into the mix for developing kids, period. Well, and it's like, as I said, with like the cultural force around it too, I mean, it's, it's a high cost for it, basically all the green foods are fruits and vegetables, which of course, if, and I experienced this living in Brooklyn in a lower income neighborhood is incredibly hard to come across. Mm-hmm. Um, if you live in a lower income area that is not in New York has a lot of those areas that are not monitored and not well-versed. And it's really hard to get that kind of food. So again, you're putting this blame on a kid when they may not have any choice. 
And yeah. also they may not have any choice from their parents. And that to me is like to introduce restricting on a level where, okay, so what, so let's say the child is on the app and really following it to a T, right? But then their parents are only bringing home what's quote red food, which hummus apparently is a red food, which <gasps> everything, everything what? was a red food on this. Yeah, I know the amount of red foods, basically all only fruits and vegetables, as I said, were in the green food. Everything else was yellow, dark yellow, red, whatever. And that's what, that was an issue to me as well. And, but you're, so let's say the child's following this to a T, right? But all their family has for them to eat are red foods and they've already consumed their three portions or whatever it says of the red food. So what, so basically you're saying restrict, I mean, yeah. it's what you there's just, it just doesn't calculate anything that could be going on economically in the family or what that family or what that child even has as a choice. Right. Not to mention, as you mentioned, like, we don't even know what this child, what if this child, like I have PCOS, right? So it affects my hormones. It affects the way that I, that my insulin levels are. What if a child has diabetes? What if they have something else? There's nothing in the app that accounts for any kind of medical um, issue for thyroid, whatever, anything that could be attributing or could affect metabolism. There's nothing in that app for that. Right. And that to me is just a whole nother, I mean, that's a whole nother issue. It's just, it, it just doesn't feel well thought out. <laughs> Right. And thinking too about, you know, my rotations that I've spent in school cafeterias and seeing school lunches. So what is the kid not supposed to eat when the school serves pizza? Like, I don't, I don't understand what they're supposed to do. Yeah. And it also, from what I've seen, and I might be wrong here. I didn't use it. I only used it for a day because I, I'm just, I, for myself, I'm not really interested in, in getting into food tracking. I, it took me four years to unlearn calorie counting. I don't need, you know, so I try to like avoid um, putting myself in situations where I would be doing any of that. But and there, it, there isn't calorie counting on the app. I'll give it that. It doesn't have a calorie count. But what I did also notice is that I... I exercised that day and I put the exercise in and it didn't, it, it did nothing with the exercise. Right. So like, it didn't say like, it didn't up how many red foods I could eat. It didn't up how many carbs I should eat or this or that. It just left my, it just left it there. <laughs> and I was like, okay, so what if this kid does an hour of, you know, I'm not, I won't go into timing, but you know, what if the kid has soccer practice and then before that they had PE that day and you're not going to account for any of that for what they're supposed to eat in a day. That to me seems again, like we're, heading into restriction. Yeah. I mean, we are, we're started in restriction and now we're just getting worse and worse as we go. Let's talk about the making parents proud as a health goal. Cause that's probably the most disturbing part for me. Although now hearing all the red foods, I'm like hummus, really? Like, what are we doing? Yeah, you should, I know, seriously, you should look at somebody. I forgot which Instagram influencer it was. Oh, was it spilling the beans nutrition or I know she did one and it was like carrot juice is like a red food. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> what is I carrot like, juice? It's so outrageous. And I was like, wait, and it, like, it's so like generalized. It's like hummus. Oh, then it was like, but then there's something like hummus with a star, like homemade hummus or something. Oh my and God. That, that, that was like, that was a yellow. I, I just, to me, I was like, how you're not even putting, like, it's just so generalized. How do you even know if that's red or yellow? Like you don't have any, how do you have any way of tracking that? Which is the same thing. I'm like, why is an egg yellow? Like, why is milk yellow? I think milk was red. I think whole, I, that's, that was one that I saw. I think whole milk was red and like 2% milk was yellow. And I was like, they're children. They need dairy. Like they need calcium. I, I just, ugh. Yeah. And so. it, it feels like they're following a low fat model, which I was like, I thought we were over that. 
I know. I know. Can we please move on from these diet models? Like, I know. Like I, low fat was so early, like, you know, 2010 and early 2000s, low fat was the thing. And then we were like, wait, we love fat. So, you know, you're a little bit behind if you're going to push dieting on kids, at least like keep up with the times, you know? I know. Haven't we moved on to other ridiculous diets? Yeah. <laughs> like, why are we not pushing cauliflower on these kids? Isn't that where we're at, you know? But okay. So let's talk about making parents proud because that really disturbed me. Yeah. I actually, I don't think I followed the making, like, you know, when you can choose which one I didn't choose that one. I chose the, uh, feeling good in my clothes Hmm. and nothing at least. And so I actually, I'm, this probably isn't the best answer that I can have because I didn't actually see anything come up on my curb. I didn't use it probably long enough. Uh, I don't really know what comes up with it whenever you use something like, or whenever you decide that that's your end goal is that you want to feel good and comfortable in your clothes or something. I'm not sure what they push at you. Cause mm-hmm. I didn't see no, nothing came up while I was using it that day. That was well, trying to be like, do you feel good in your jeans? <laughs> yeah. I'm sure it's something to do with the actual coaches that who work with you so that they know what your, what intentions are. Yeah. Um, well, and if, th- if that's the case, that's a whole nother set. I mean, it's like, what? making daddy and mommy or mommy and mom, you know, whoever proud, like what? Yeah. So I did this whole thread on uh, Twitter, basically just going through their blog of success stories and talking about, because I'm pulling screenshots of, you know, kid loses weight and makes dad proud or, or daughter loses weight and gets up on that stage and finally is confident enough to sing or something like that. As if, you know, weight loss is this key to your parents' love and your parents' acceptance and, and confidence and success and yada, yada, yada. And I just the work that I do with diet recovery and, you know, binge eating recovery, I find that really dark because you're literally pushing this idea onto kids. That's like the only way that you can get, cause I mean, they're, you know, their rational brains are not fully developed yet. Like we're talking kids who are highly emotional, who are, you know, finding their identity and going through these really formative years. And during that time, if you are, you know, sold this message that, you know, you have to lose weight for your parents to love you. Like you internalize that for the rest of your life. Yeah. Well, I mean, we're already looking at our parents. So my, like, even in my own experience and I love my mother dearly. Um, and I would never, you know, she, I think she was just part of the generation that was wrapped up in diet culture too. Like I, I think our parents' generation, I'm 30. So mm-hmm. I consider myself a millennial and I think our parents' generation were kind of the real beginning, kind of that Jane Fonda era in the eighties mm-hmm. when the whole gym started franchising and there started being more marketing and PR around working out because of the franchises and Jane Fonda doing her workout videos and all this crap that that came up. So I think my mom was just a product of that kind of um, marketing push and you know that first wave of publicity messaging, et cetera. And I remember being a kid and my mom was taping up and my mom like my mom does not have health problems. She's already, she's always been a healthy lady. There was no need for her to feel the way she felt. But she, I remember her putting a picture up on the fridge. And every day of my childhood, when she was working out, she would always point to that picture and be like, I don't want to look that way ever again. And she never has, as far as I know. And, you know, but that's, that's her own story. I'm not even going to go any more than that. But like, I remember that still sticks with me. And it was something that came up for me in treatment that I had to talk with her about while we were doing family therapy one time Mm. is that I was like, you know, it's really, it was so impressionable to me because you hated on yourself so much. And when your own mother is hating on herself and I looked at my mother, like she was superwoman, And so when I looked at her doing that, it automatically set this tone in my head that like, 
okay, well, if I look like that ever, that picture on the fridge, I'm not doing something right. right. And so, yeah, it goes along with that same thing. I mean, we are, we are completely, for the most part, most of us are looking up to our parents for them to set the tone for what self-esteem and confidence looks like. Right. And I mean, honestly, that's why I like working with that generation the most. Like those are my favorite clients because when you're dealing with, you know, decades of stuff, which I'm like, Ooh, trauma, let's dig into it. And then, you know, (laughs) whatever, (laughs) that's just my personality. But then also I just think it's interesting because a lot of people will come to me when they have kids and then they realize that they're, you know, they see their parents' behaviors, um, being projected onto their kids and they're like, Oh my gosh, I'm continuing the cycle. And that to me, I find just such a huge motivator and I I'm a really big believer that you need a why, like, why are you doing this? Because recovery is hard enough. You need a through line. Like you need this driving force that carries you through and this greater purpose for doing it. And having kids and not wanting to pass it along, or maybe in the future having kids or whatever it is, it can be a really good, not saying that's everyone's reason, but it can be a really good motivator because if you think about the way that your parents were in front of you or to you, it's dark. Mm-hmm. Like we do pick that stuff up and we internalize it. And we don't even realize that we're internalizing that for like 40 years or whatever it is. Well, and even to our own, you know, in, on that same note, right? Like for those, for those people that don't want children, as you were, as you were kind of saying, like, it's not, a, that's not always the motivating factor, but it can be in the same way of like, I don't have kids right now. I would like kids maybe in the future. I'm not really sure. But one of my motivating things is that when I started to recognize how my own words about myself and my body affected my friend group, even like my Mm. own circle of of female friends, especially. And I've, I've had conversations with some of my best friends and been like, I can't imagine how triggering that would have been in my eating disorder years when all I could do was talk about how I looked or this, um, you know, why my thigh looked this way or had this on it or whatever, blah, blah, blah. And I was like, I can't, I mean, when I hear women doing it, you know, in groups, it's, it happens often in groups of women, mm-hmm. let's call it out. It, it is what it is. I was just on a bachelorette party and at least eight out of 12 of them made a negative comment about their own body, not mm-hmm. about others. That's what I always find. Right. We're not talking shit. <laughs> We're not talking shit about other people's bodies. I think we've mm-hmm. kind of progressed past that, at least at a certain age, but we end up talking so much shit about our own bodies that it kind of starts this wave of negative self-reflection because we're either trying to fit into the conversation or we're just starting, we're just, our brain, you know, refocuses. And then we're like, oh yeah, what sucks about us? Like what sucks about me? Right. And or what do I think sucks about me? Right. And so that's been like a huge in the same way, that's been a huge thing. Is like, I don't want generations of women sitting around at dinner. We have more important shit to talk about in 2019 with the way that our world is right now than talking about how our how we have a certain birthmark or something on our leg that we don't like or this or that, whatever. And and that to me was the, along the same lines a, a is a motivating factor. I can't even imagine what it would be like if I had children one day. Yeah. And, you know, for me, just to kind of round out this conversation of motivation, motivators, in case no one identifies with either of those, you know, I think one that another one is just the activism component of it. And kind of like you're saying, not wanting to contribute to the culture that is so oppressive and so harmful. And that to me was big when I learned about fat activism, when I learned about Hell at Every Size, and when I learned about, you know, just the the stigma and really, you know, that's my own privilege showing is like when I learned about the stigma that um, people who are in bigger bodies experience and that I hadn't quite put to words. And then, you know, started learning about it, had a lot of friends tell me about it, you know, met a lot of people in the space, tell me about it. Like that was a huge, cause I was like, Oh my God, I don't want to be a part of a system that 
makes people feel like this and that perpetuates these beliefs because it's so harmful. Have you ever done an episode on that line? Like, have you ever done an episode on um, how on like with somebody that has experienced bias from doctors or like a, yeah. a, a group episode? Yeah. Have you? Cause that is what opened my eyes is how much yeah. bias there is in the medical field when treating somebody that they feel is in a larger body. And yeah. it's, it's outrageous. I want to do more episodes on it just with more perspectives because I've done a couple. Um, and I've also talked to the re- researcher just about the problems with BMI and all that stuff and, and how she speaks to doctors. Like she does presentations to be like, if you're not concerned about the model who is, you know, technically in the underweight BMI, then stop being concerned about your patients and bigger bodies because you're just being biased because underweight comes with, you know, even more health risks, but you're only concerned about people who are fat. Like that's your bias. That's not medicine. So cut it out. <laughs> Did you ever see that Reddit thread where it was a guy being like, I, I snort Coke twice a week and oh, yeah. I drink all the Gatorade. And he was like, and he was like, it ain't nobody saying shit to me in the doctor's office about my right. because he was like, cause I live in like a smaller body. And I, I don't know why that, that I think it was the Reddit thread or it was a tweet something, but something that stuck that, with yeah. me. So that stuck with me so hard when I read that. I was like, it's so true though. It's so yeah. true. That bias is so prevalent. It really is. And it's, it is interesting to see, you know, the, what thin people can put their bodies through and not, no one will say a goddamn word, but a fat person just existing is like a health risk, you know, just ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. So, I mean, I feel like the last thing just to finish up this Kerbal conversation is, you know, just in general, we need to not be putting kids on restrictive diets um, and more so focusing on food access and the socioeconomic factors at play and parents being stressed and parents learning how to talk to their kids about nutrition without it being this sort of moralistic, you know, shamey conversation. And, you know, recognizing that kids gain weight in puberty, like that, that's it. Nothing else needs to be said about it. Like we don't need to, you know, diagnose it. It's just it's a thing that happens and kids are bigger and kids are smaller and it's whatever, you know, we need to just relax about it and focus on why people aren't getting enough access to food. Like why parents are so stressed out, you know, kids who can't even afford to eat school lunches. Like all of these things are the things that I'm primarily concerned about. And, you know, this Kerbo app just sheds light on how sort of broken our approach to health is. And especially in the for-profit industry, it's, it's hard to watch. So, I mean, do you have any final thoughts on this? All I'll say is what I always will feel about it, that in America alone, this country's market for weight loss products and services um, this year reached an all-time high of $72 billion. Um, And yeah, right. Mm. And so to me, just going back to it, like Weight Watchers or WW, however they want to go by at this point, they know what they're doing and they know what industry they're getting. I mean, they know what, they know exactly what I think they're doing behind their messaging and behind this app. And that's what I think is irresponsible and corporate profiteering. And I won't ever feel any differently about companies like that. They have in a $72 billion industry, they have enough research. <laughs> they have the means Guaranteed. to have the research done too. <laughs> Well, because, and they have to, and then I'm stopping, but they have to have the opposing research because the marketing department and the whole team, I mean, they just need to know what they're up against. Any company has opposing research just to know what they're going up against. So it's not even like, it. yeah. 
Yes. Yeah. And what they do at that opposing research is they take out the keywords that keep coming up and the mm-hmm. keywords that like that most that they have done the research to see what consumers respond to, which is part of marketing, right? It's the SEO. It's, it's a, all these keywords are what they see and what drives consumers to buy their product. And that's what they're doing. And that to me is irresponsible in this day and age. I agree. Um, is there anything that you've got going on right now? Where can people find you? all the things. Yeah. Um, okay. They can find me at my blog. I haven't blogged in a couple of months cause I've just been all over the place, but i uh, always, they can find me at www. I haven't shaved in six weeks.com, which, and we never said this, but that started because we weren't allowed to shave in rehab or in treatment. Mm-hmm. And, uh, that's where that came from. I feel like I should have said that at the beginning, but oh. yeah, we weren't allowed to have, yeah, we weren't allowed to have razors. So, uh, that was something I would have liked to have known going in and there's nothing wrong with body hair. Uh, and I totally got used to it, but at the time I was a little bit like, what? So that was something, <laughs> yeah. that was something, uh, that was something I would have wanted to know. So that's kind of where the blog name came from. Got it, um, got it. Yeah. But so you can find me at my blog or you can find me on Instagram at Lindsay Hall writes. Um, I'm also on Facebook at Lindsay Hall writes. You can add me as a friend. Uh, I'm almost, I'm almost, you know, Facebook cuts you off. You can't have that many. You can only have so many friends on Facebook. Otherwise you have to have a page. So I, uh, have a page as well. And it's the, I haven't shaved in six weeks blog. So All feel free right. to find me there or email me or email me at lindsayhallblog at gmail.com. Yay. Well, thank you so much, Lindsay. I am so glad that we got to cover some of this stuff and I appreciate you coming on the podcast. If you are loving the Trust Your Body Project podcast and are ready to dive headfirst into your healing transformation, head on over to whitneycatalano.com slash food dash freedom to learn more about working with me. whitneycatalano.com slash food dash freedom.